Okay, so how about that rattle song? So I've, I've got to tell you this. I went to our camp this summer with high school, middle schoolers. The Holy Spirit really moved powerfully there. And one of the songs that on several nights we worshiped together with and, and our worship team led us in was Rattle. And I got into it. Uh, after one of the nights, Pastor Elena came up to me and she said, Pastor Tim, I didn't know you could jump so high. <laughs> and I said, uh, don't expect me to do that on a Sunday morning because we have to protect the integrity of the floor. Uh, but I love this song, and so we have, we have designed this series partly. Uh, it's really on Ezekiel and stories of resurrection, but it's inspired partly by this song. It's from Elevation Worship, and there's a line in the song I want to draw your attention to where it says, my God is able to save and deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. So what about, what about just a bunch of scattered bones in a dusty dry valley? Can God cause those to live again? Well, last week, when Pastor Glenn brought the message, and boy, did he bring it, right? Wow, last week. We talked about Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, and we learned that sin leads to a valley of deadly consequences, but the Word of God brings hope, and the Spirit of God brings life. So th that valley, that valley of dry bones, is an example of God restoring what was lost and then filling us with His breath, His Spirit. The, the whole book of the prophet Ezekiel, if I was forced to condense it into a single concept, would be the answer to this question. Can life come out of death? In fact, last week we read how God asked Ezekiel this very question in chapter 37. It says in verse three, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, he said, I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. It was a very safe answer. <laughs> but the answer was a resounding and rattling yes. So today we're taking it up about eight years after that vision, the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel in this vision is shown in even more powerful way how God brings life out of death. He was taken in this other vision to a mountain in Israel. Remember, he was in Babylon in exile, and he was first taken to this deep valley. Well, now he's taken to a mountain, from valley to mountain. And atop this mountain, he is shown a magnificent temple. It far exceeded Solomon's temple, or any other temple, and to show Ezekiel around this temple is, well, he's a man. He's a man whose skin is the appearance of shining bronze. He's a supernatural being who is nevertheless a man. I know you're wondering, who could this be? Is it Jesus? Well, there's debate about it. I think it's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. But he's a representative of God the Father. So I'm gonna call him this man of heaven, okay? 
And what this man of heaven shows Ezekiel becomes this like mind-blown moment because it reveals what God's purpose is in the whole temple thing. Why are there temples in the first place? In fact, what God reveals is the whole purpose of the Hebrew Bible. It's a good time, I think, to pray, don't you? If you have your Bible, you can hold it up or hold up the word in your hearts. Father, thank you for the amazing word that you have given us, the revelation of your Son. And Father, I pray that you would anoint our hearts to receive the good word that you desire for us to know and to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, there's something in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that keeps popping up. It's a recurring theme. It's, it's like a motif that occurs again and again. And it's the river of life. The river of life. In Eden, the Garden of Eden, the beginning, like, you know, page two of the Bible, it's this river that goes out into four rivers, and it flows from the tree of life. In Numbers, it's water that comes from a rock to quench the thirst of God's people. The prophets keep speaking about this. The Psalms keep speaking about it. It's everywhere in the Hebrew Bible. The river of life theme, it's a picture of life that comes from God and it surpasses what we call life. In the book of Revelation, we see that the source of the river is that actual tree of life. And the description of Eden in Genesis kind of refers to this. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, what was the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was understood in the Hebrew scriptures and by the Hebrews as the place where heaven and earth intersected and interacted. This interaction between heaven and earth. Why people were there, but God was there. It was heaven and it was earth like overlapping. So it was cool, isn't that cool? Well, humans decided that they could just do better, right, than that. They could do better on their own with their own wisdom. They didn't need God to tell them what to do. So they lost it. But this river of life is connected to God's heavenly rule. It's connected to the place where heaven and earth interact. Now there was a place in ancient Israel which represented that place where heaven and earth interacted, and that was the temple. The temple was constructed as a place where there was a special room called the Holy of Holies, where once a year the priests could enter and actually interact with God. It was a place that represented Eden. In fact, there were fruit trees that were like carved into the walls and the even the lampstands were kind of designed after tree designs. There were cherubs and supernatural beings that were there because this was representative of Eden. It was a taste of the original presence of God, a taste of that interaction between heaven and earth. But because of our fallen state and our rebellion, it was a dangerous place. You didn't want to go just waltz in, right? It was guarded. So only under very, very limited circumstances could you interact with heaven. Otherwise, you know, 
But even this, even this interactive place of Solomon's temple, there was no river of life there. There was no source of God's life flowing from it as there was in Eden. Humans lost that. And that's really sad because, this is point one in your notes, the river of life begins where heaven and earth interact. The whole idea behind the river of life is that it provides for our thirsty souls. It's what we need to live in God. And when humans rebelled against God, we deprived ourselves access to this eternal life-giving flow. But God, so God came up with a plan. He made this covenant with his family, Abraham's family. And this covenant was God's love for Abraham and his family would eventually restore blessing to all the nations of the earth if the family would obey him. And God gave this design for the tabernacle and the temple as a foretaste of his intention to restore this relationship that was lost. So temple was a place, heaven and earth interacted as a kind of mini Eden, and even though there was no river proceeding from it, there was the future promise or hope that someday there would be a river of life. One problem, if you remember anything about last week's message, something happened to the temple. First, God stopped interacting with people there because they were worshiping other gods in the temple. And then the Babylonians came and, and leveled the building. So it's gone, poof. Where's the hope of the river of life now? And that's why Ezekiel being shown this magnificent, huge, temple by this heavenly man in this vision, it's such a big deal. It means that from God's point of view, it is not over. It is not over. Look what happens in Ezekiel 44, verse 4, as he's being given the tour of the temple. It says, then the man brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. I looked and saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple of the Lord, and I fell face down. So even though Israel had broken the covenant repeatedly, even though Solomon's temple was destroyed and God turned Israel over to Babylonian captivity and his glory had departed, what's this vision saying? It's saying my presence is coming back to you in a new restored temple you can't even imagine. Okay, here's one of like two nerd out moments. I'm gonna tell you the following history of the temple building so that you know what happens here. Eventually, after the exile, after the 70 year exile or so, they did rebuild a temple under Zerubbabel, but it was not by any means the temple of Ezekiel's vision. It was tiny compared to it. And then that fell into disrepair and hundreds of years later, a wicked king named Herod, you may have heard of, he decided to remodel the temple. He actually kind of rebuilt it. And it was much bigger, but it still was not Ezekiel's temple by any stretch of the imagination. So you have these temple buildings, but there was no interaction with the divine, right? God's presence was not there. It was not the overlap of heaven and earth. It was just a symbol of it. 
So here, let's fast forward to Jesus' time. You've got the Herod's big temple where there's no overlapping of heaven and earth, but you've got the building and you've got the sacrifices. The apostle John in the New Testament, who's following Jesus around, he records a very interesting event on page two of his report concerning Jesus that we call the Gospel of John. Jesus was hanging out in Herod's remodeled temple, arguing with the Pharisees, which is kind of like a hobby of his, when he said something very interesting. Jesus told them, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the Pharisees are like, dude, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And actually, they weren't even done yet. It would take decades more. And you're going to build it in three days? <sighs> and John says that Jesus was not talking about Herod's temple building. Jesus was talking about, according to John, his own body. So the place that heaven and earth interact is Jesus' body. The new temple. The new Eden in this man who was God, who was fully human, fully God, Emmanuel, God with us. John on page one of his report said that he was the word made flesh who tabernacled among us. You see this word tabernacle? He is the new overlap of heaven and earth, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. And the temple that Ezekiel is being shown around hundreds of years before, it's a picture of him. It's a picture of Jesus. I want you to get this, it's very important. Jesus is the person where heaven and earth interact. It's him. Okay, so this still sort of leaves the question open, what about the river of life? you know, that's supposed to flow from the tree of life that humans lost when they gave, you know, God up and they rebelled against him. It's all well and good, Ezekiel might be thinking, we've got this new incredible temple that's coming, this vision. I'm impressed, Ezekiel must be thinking, but I wonder if Ezekiel was wondering, is it really any different than the old temple? It's bigger, it's magnificent, God interacts with the high priest once a year, but it's dry as a bone. We didn't have the river of life that was lost when we lost Eden because we didn't deserve it. And Ezekiel, I mean, he's like, this is great, but we lost that privilege. Have you ever, um, you ever lost a privilege in your life? Okay, so when I, when I was 13, I was deemed old enough to have the privilege of going into the fridge anytime I wanted and getting whatever I want, milk, you know, anytime I wanted during the day, I could have a glass of milk. So with this newfound privilege and power, I got to thinking, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. You know, you go in there, you take the jug, you unscrew it, you go get a glass, you pour it in the glass, put the jug back in, and then you drink the milk, and then you wash the glass. But we could skip a lot of steps. <laughs> so I began drinking directly from the jug. And one day, 
I was caught red-handed. I lost my privilege. <laughs> so I could still have milk, I would just have to ask permission and, and so on. Like, you know, I, in other words, I was set back a little bit because I didn't take my privilege seriously. So things changed. But I still drank directly out of the iced tea carton. Um, <laughs> that, I don't think until today I ever admitted that to my mom, but she was probably going to see this. So for God's life-giving stream to flow from his presence, it was one of those, you know, well, we hope someday we'll have that privilege again, but we lost it and we don't deserve it. And people thought, well, hey, having any kind of rebuilt temple, that's good enough. Because, you know, it's great, because we'll know that God's still on some level interacting with us. But now watch what this heavenly man shows Ezekiel next in the vision. In Ezekiel chapter 47, verse one, first part of the verse. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. And it's like, what's this? There's water bubbling up from under the temple heading east. Ezekiel knew exactly what that water represented. Zechariah knew when he prophesied. Isaiah knew. It's in Psalms. It's in the book of Joel. It's John the Apostle knew. And as we're going to see in a minute, Jesus knew fully well what this water was. It's the river of life. I want you to notice that it's flowing east. And this is not just a random direction. Would you like to know what east signifies in Scripture? Anybody want to know? Well, then I'll skip that. But okay, east. <laughs> east is the place of exile. It's the place where you go for a time out. So when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they went east. When Cain was sent away for murder, he went east. When Moses killed the Egyptian overseer, he went east. When Ezekiel's people of Israel were expelled from the promised land, where do you think they went? Yeah, right. So this trickle of water from the new place heaven and earth interact, it's headed east. In the vision, the heavenly man invites Ezekiel to follow exactly where this trickle of water is leading. And after walking a thousand cubits, the water's ankle deep. After walking another thousand cubits, maybe I should tell you what a cubit is. Would you like to know? Okay, so a cubit, this is nerd stuff. A cubit is if you put your arm up like this, it's the distance from your elbow to the top of your middle finger. That's a cubit. Obviously, it's a little different for everyone, but on average, it's about between 18 and 19 inches. This is cool stuff. So, like, you know, the next time you go to a party, you can say, you know, I know what a cubit is. And people will just flock to you to find this out. And, and husbands, you can do something really cool too. You can actually measure that, you know, in inches or centimeters. And then you can go around the house measuring things and making the conversion. And you can know what everything in your house is in cubits. Like, because it's really, am I the, I'm the only one, aren't I? Okay, so ankle deep 
and then a thousand more cubits, it's knee deep, a thousand more, and it's waist deep, and a thousand more, and now it's up to the shoulders. This river is all the way up to the shoulders of Ezekiel, and he has to go ashore because what looked like a trickle from the place where heaven and earth overlap has become a torrent of life, a swift, deep, wide river of life. And as Ezekiel watches and wonder, this mighty river flows east towards one of the most death-filled, desolate places on earth. Point two of your notes, the river of life flows to desolate places. Water tends to flow to the lowest places. I mean, it's because of gravity, right? And in this case, the lowest place near Jerusalem just to the east of Jerusalem is the lowest place on earth. So if you, if you get a kind of a side view of the topography of like Israel and where Jerusalem is, think there's this ridge and Jerusalem is up here at the top of it. And then to the east, if you go over the ridge, you're going down, 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 down. And then you hit this valley and it's low. In fact, there's a body of water there that's an inland sea. It's the lowest body of water in the world. It's 1,400 feet below sea level, which is 948 cubits, if you're curious. <laughs> and it's called the Dead Sea. Do you know why it's called the Dead Sea? I'll tell you why it's called the Dead Sea. Because nothing lives there. <laughs> I mean, there's some microorganisms and, and maybe a fungus that some tourist keeps leaving, but it's otherwise, it's dead. The salt content of the water here, it's insane. Okay, so the ocean. The ocean is salty, I think we can all agree. The ocean is very salty, and the, the salt content of the ocean is a little over 3%. The Dead Sea's salt content is 33.7%. That's why you can't sink if you jump in. You jump in the Dead Sea and you just go bloop, 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 like a bobber, right? People do this. They visit there so they can try it out. They're like, oh, this is so cool. We don't sink. But there's no fish. There's no birds, no plants. It's dead. Now, the Jordan River does empty into the Dead Sea, which is constantly bringing fresh water into it every day. But that fresh water doesn't stand a chance. The Dead Sea lets it in and then it just salts it thoroughly. So what's going to happen to this river of life when it encounters this abyss of death? Well, let's keep reading. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse six. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river because, you know, he was starting to, Maybe he couldn't swim. So when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. Interesting, more on that later. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. The river of life flowing from God's place of heaven and earth, Jesus, his son, flows into the deepest, darkest places of death and changes it. I love what Andrew Murray says, the great missionary 
that just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power flow in. Have you ever felt empty, running on empty? When your life has ever felt devoid of meaning and maybe you feel sometimes you're just existing and you're not living. The river of life flows swiftly to these low places. Even if your life feels dead, the life Christ offers comes to you, makes you alive. So the reason that the Dead Sea is dead is because there's no outflow. It only takes in. It doesn't give anything. Water comes in through the Jordan River, doesn't go out. And this is the perfect illustration, I think, of the self-focused life. Remember how I said that the Dead Sea takes that water from the Jordan River? Inflow, no outflow. The Dead Sea hoards. There's wealth in the Dead Sea. It's been estimated, I've read in more than one place, that the mineral wealth is estimated to be somewhere in the realm of $60 billion, just the minerals in the Dead Sea. I mean, it's worth a lot, but there's no life. I think people can experience this, where they have a life of accumulation, where actions and stuff, and maybe even other people are just assessed as to how much value they add to my life. If there's any give, it's just to take. Well, treating everything and everybody as just investments to score returns, it's not wise, because we don't get to keep this stuff. It's what we give away. It's what we give expecting nothing in return. That's what produces an environment of life. And this is why sin is so destructive, because it breeds self-focus, impatience and cruelty and envy, and arrogance, and self-seeking, anger and unforgiveness. All that stuff is a nursery for death. But the river of life, it's founded in love. It's patient, it's kind. It rejoices in other people's success. It's humble, it's self-sacrificing, it forgives. Love produces the conditions of life. You see, sin hoards and nurtures death. Love dispenses and nurtures life. Okay, so what's gonna happen when God's love encounters sin? Well, I mean, the angel said, Heavenly man said it's gonna make it fresh, but now we get to watch what happens when this river of life comes crashing into the dead and salty sea of death. Which one really is gonna win? So, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. Here's what happens. Third point is the river of life makes dead things live again. Makes dead things live again. In Ezekiel 47 verses nine, and then we'll do verse 12 too. This is what happens. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water 
from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So, okay, I want you to notice two things about these verses. <laughs> it's kind of exciting. First, it's no contest, right? Where the life of Jesus flows, the dead live again. Where the life of Jesus flows, the hoardings of sin are replaced by the generosities of love. How we live, it just changes. Our priorities change. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, it's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life flowing from him, the one who is both heaven and earth, God with us, the eternal temple, the new Eden, into and through us. So in this vision, second thing, notice the trees on the banks of this river, which I kind of paused and read them in a funny way. Bearing delicious fruit every single month and their leaves are good for medicine. I wonder who that is. In Psalm 1, it reads, the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That's Psalm 1. Ezekiel's vision of these trees growing by the river of life, it's an intentional hyperlink to Psalm 1. Author knows what he's doing here. It's the effect of the water of life to bear fruit in the lives of everybody who drinks from it. And Jesus refers to this multiple times with reference to himself. Remember when he was with the Samaritan woman at the well and, and he asked her for some water and then she got sassy and then, then he said, look, if you knew who was asking, you would ask me and I'd give you living water because whoever drinks this well water gets thirsty again, but if you drink the water I give, you'll never get thirsty again. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling the prophetic vision of being the new temple where heaven and earth meet, the source of the water of life. Okay, so there's this other event in Jesus' ministry which bears a little bit of a couple minutes. So Jesus is attending in John chapter seven the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's the seventh day of the seven-day feast. And there's this ceremony that takes place where the high priest goes and he takes a cup of water from the pool of Siloam, and then he goes back up to the temple, and then he pours this water into a bowl representing the future someday Ezekiel temple water of life flowing through like the restored Eden, okay? That's, that's what this libation ceremony is all about. And it's kind of a tense moment. It's very exciting because everybody looks forward to it, but it's tense because about 100 years before there was a political disagreement and the high priest was angry with some of the religious people and he just poured the water on the ground and there was a riot and there was a massacre and it started a war, okay? <laughs> so here's the moment. <laughs> Everybody knows this. And so here comes the high priest and he's pouring the water into this bowl and this is when Jesus decides to stand up and start shouting. <laughs> Listen to what it says in John chapter 7, 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So the scripture, Jesus, so th this is what he's telling me. He's not just referring to a particular scripture here when he says, as the scripture said. He's, this is the whole meaning of the Hebrew Bible. All of the scriptures are leading to this moment. Come to me and drink. And Jesus shouted for all to hear that he was the fulfillment of this recurring prophetic theme of the water of life throughout scripture. He alone can satisfy our thirst. He gives the water of life. Why? So what will go out and give to others as we live. And the tree of life from which that water comes became the tree that Christ was crucified on. It was his death that brings life. Okay, I'm going to just take a quick second. I didn't do this first service, but do you remember that weird scene at the crucifixion when Jesus had died, but they wanted to be sure so that soldier speared him in the side. And what happened? Water and blood flowed out. So why is John talking about this? It's not just some interesting medical fact, that we, which is true, we can study how, you know. But he was pointing something out. The trickle from Ezekiel's temple had begun. It had begun there. And then when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, on the third day, there was a rattling sound as the stone is being moved, heavy stone. And Mary and a couple of Jesus' friends saw it empty. It was the river of life, ankle deep. Jesus appeared to them and 500 more people, the river's knee deep. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit pours out and 3,000 people came to Christ and in the ministry of Paul and the early church and the river of life is flowing waist high and it's flowing today. The river's deep, it's wide. And, and when you turn to Christ, you're a tree planted by that river of water, bearing fruit with healing leaves that don't wither because out of you rivers of living water flow. So you, right here watching online, you right here in this room are fulfillment of prophecy. And if you know Christ, but your life doesn't seem to resemble the nourishing healing tree of Ezekiel 47 as much as you'd like, this is what you have to do, is draw closer to that river. Draw near to the bank. Let that life-giving water like cover your roots Immerse yourself in his word. Immerse yourself in prayer to him. Immerse yourself in the body that you've been called to and serve. He changes us. He loves us too much to let our lives just be self-focused because, because God gives life to you so he can give life through you. That's his purpose. That's what we're here for. It's not just to take it, but to let it flow through us to other people. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. I think this is, this is a call to action. It's a call to be much more intentional with him. 
to immerse ourselves in his word and in prayer. And maybe it just starts a little bit at a time where the focus shifts. And if you would like that, if you would like to be more immersed and you're willing to say, God, help me be more immersed in you, in your word, and in prayer. Help me, God. If you'd like me to pray for you, I count to three. Just raise your hand. One, two, three. I see, yeah, I'm all over the room. Can't even count. Can't even count. Father, I just pray for every single person who's lifted their hand in this room to be more immersed in you with your word and with prayer that you would honor the hearts that are behind these hands, Father, and all the hands that were raised. And everyone here who raised maybe a hand in their heart, I pray, Father, that you would grant the craving and the desire to be with you and spend that time with you and that you would strengthen for the discipline to do it. In Jesus' name. With your head still bowed and eyes closed, this is a, such a critical moment, I think, for people's lives. And if you're at home watching or you're in this room, I believe that if you have never turned your life over to Jesus Christ and asked him to forgive you of all your sins, that this could be your day, could be your moment. We all know that we've done things that are wrong in this life. People think that in order to get in God's good favor that you have to do enough good things to outweigh the bad, but that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that God knows that we cannot earn his favor, and so he gave it to us as a gift. That anyone that believes that he sent his son to die for us, and that he raised him from the dead to give us new life, that he would grant as a gift freely given, not deserved, not earned, eternal life and a new life in him. And maybe you're here, or maybe you're online and you've been feeling that tug in your heart and it's like, you know, something's got to give here. That's the Holy Spirit that is drawing you to him. So if you would like to be included in this prayer that I'm gonna pray, and that's you, and you felt God drawing you to himself, for forgiveness and new life. When I count to three, you just raise your hand and online there will be a button for you to push. One, two, hands already going up. Three, thank you. I see your hand in yours and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. Thank you. And I see your hand. Thank you, sir. God bless you. For this and yours, ma'am, thank you. And yours. I don't want to miss anyone. For the sake of those who raise their hands, can we all say this prayer? Would you pray after me? Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you gave your son, Jesus, for me. He died for me. I ask your forgiveness, and I accept Jesus as my Lord my Savior, and my God, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Can we give God some glory for what he just did in this place?
He's really good. Don't, don't leave today without connecting in a deeper way to him because now you know your purpose. Life to flow through you to others. Would you stand with me now? There's a blessing that you're gonna get right now and if you're watching online, this is a good time just to take a deep breath. Put your hands and your palms maybe in an upward position of receiving. If you're in this room, you can do the same. May the Lord bless you with his water of life to revive, refresh, flow through you to give life to everyone around you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters. We'll see you soon. What an incredible service it was today. If this was your first time here or you just accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's a link in the chat. If you want to click that, we want to get to know you. We want to pray for you. Or if you're going through something difficult right now, we want to stand with you. We want to lift you up in prayer. There's a link there as well. But we love you, church. Thank you so much for tuning in today. God has so much in store for you. Love you, church.